How many of you like specialty pizza? Like not just your kind of regular pizza. Yeah, there's a few specialty pizza people. So on, on, we didn't really have a specialty pizza, but the other night on Friday night we had, or we got some pizza from a local spot, uh, not two for one spot. The pizza you pay a little bit more for, and uh, but really good. And it was it was good. It was it was really good. The ingredients were awesome. It was like there was some mushrooms and onions and uh, and obviously cheese. And then they had this crumbled sausage. When I went to the counter, I said. Is it a sliced sausage or a crumbled sausage? Because you wrote Italian. They said, why? I said, I don't like sliced sausage on pizza, but if it's crumbled, I'll take it. And they actually checked for me, and it was checked good. So it was good, it was good sausage. Anyways, and, uh, and my son Andrew wasn't a fan of the onions on the pizza, but his description was, was so well. Because we're eating this, and I, I loved it, but he said this. He says, Dad, there's just so much going on on this pizza, I don't even know how to describe it. Like when, when, he, when he put it in his mouth, right? And so that for him wasn't the, the, you know, the, the positive side of it. For me, it was like there's an explosion of flavor in my mouth. I love it, you know? But that was this idea. Like I loved how he said that. There's so much going on here, I can't even describe it. And because it's this beautiful mixture of all these ingredients together that when you put it in your mouth, you really kind of get the sense of what's, what's happening. We're, we're in this, on a transition to this, we're in this series so far on the cross called Bigger Than You Think. And we've talked about the fascination of the cross when we started this. Uh, we walked through the, just the, the depth of sin, the gravity of sin. And then last week, we, we started kind of like a two-week um, you know, uh, kind of series within a series, trying to understand the atonement. And as we started to look at that last week, we noticed the sacrifice that went on uh, at the cross through Christ, and some of the, the metaphors and, and understanding we got from the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement and the idea of, um, of a mercy seat uh, in the temple, this wiping away of sin, this covering over sin, this not counting our sins against us, and the beautiful result of that, Paul's language in Romans 3 was, we're justified in Christ. When we put our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus as he you know, walked God's plan, and rescued humanity, it's justified just as if we did not sin. And this other word, redeemed, that we're rescued from the effects of sin, the actions of sin, our actions, and then the agent of sin, the power of sin. And, and last week, as we started and looked at that particular picture of what we call atonement, it was really a foundation. And, but I, I want to get this idea across as we jump in today. The founda- it's the foundation of how we understand the atonement, but it's not the fullness. And I mentioned that today we would expand a little bit and look a little deeper because as much as what we looked at last week was so important, there's more ways to understand what happened on the cross than sacrifice. There's more ways to understand what happened on the cross on the cross than Jesus wiping away our sin or not counting our sins against us. That's foundational, but there's more. And this whole series is called Bigger Than We Think. And so you might be wondering, why do I have a pretty cheap uh, set of golf clubs? Because if you're a golfer, you know this is not an expensive set of golf clubs. And uh, this is my cheap set of golf clubs. I'm not a good golfer. I'm not a golfer, period, because I don't think if you go once a year, you're really considered a golfer, right? I think golfers go at least 10, 15, maybe weekly. Uh, I don't know. And, um, but, but I learned something from some of my golfer friends is there's a reason why, like, there's a bag of golf clubs. 
and that we don't just use one golf club, right? Like when you're golfing, if you've ever golfed before, uh, even if you're a novice, you realize that like you pick up like this big sucker, you know, this big driver when you got to go like 200, 300 yards to, you know, try and reach the hole because it's called the driver. You drive it for a reason. And then there's other clubs in here like the irons and the sand wedge and the putters. And what I've understood from, you know, regular golfers is that you can't use the same club for every shot. That would be horrible. And you'd look really dumb on the course, right? Uh, I think so. If you're kind of on the green with the driver and you're trying, that, anyways, that wouldn't look good. Um, you can't use, even pro, even the pros use these caddies and these people that walk with them and they consult together. They say like, man, I'm, I'm 120 yards. Here's the wind. Which iron should I use? It's like a science behind it almost of kind of like, which club am I going to use on this shot? And imagine though, playing golf with one club. Like imagine just taking this club, this big one, and like it works from far, but it's horrible from close. And it works good when you put those little white tees underneath it. But if you're just on the grass, it probably it's not really great when you're just on the grass, right? And it would be really bad as a putter or in the sand. Would, it, would you guys agree? Yeah, you, so you can't just use this for that. And so too often, we do something similar with the atonement. We explain it with one club. We explain it with one image. We explain it with the one metaphor we know, maybe the one we talked about last week. But the beauty that we find in Scripture and in the life of Jesus is that Jesus used different pictures and metaphors to describe what his death would be and what it would accomplish. And the New Testament gives us a variety of metaphors of what uh, would actually take place on the cross or what was happening on the cross. So I want to start this week and I want to pick up from last week's metaphor and kind of use this bag of clubs to help us understand that we can't use the same club for every shot or the same image to explain what happened on the cross. So the, the image we looked at last week, and I'll just choose kind of a random club, and we'll call last week's image kind of the, the sacrifice image or the substitute image. Romans chapter 3, we read this verse, and it's on the screen, and we said this last week, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So God in the cross, in Christ, Christ becomes the sacrifice of atonement. Some people might say he's a substitute because the word atonement in the Hebrew is the word uh, kapur, which means mercy seat, which was the seat on the, the, the Ark of the Covenant in the temple where the priest would sprinkle blood, where they would literally uh, symbolically you know, understand that when this sacrifice was made, the sins of the people were wiped out, was covered over. Something took, took the place of our sin, that's the image we get here, the sacrifice of atonement. Something takes the place of our sin. Mercy was offered instead. And Jesus, on the mercy seat, extends that day of atonement for all people in all times as he goes to the cross and sheds his blood and extends God's merciful kindness to us. That's that image we see from last week. Here's another verse that helps us understand it. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul says, He was made to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you see this kind of substitution going taking place, this kind of this almost this, this exchange taking place. Scott McKnight says it this way, really simple. He said, Jesus did something for us by being there instead of us. Jesus did something for us by being there instead of us. So you can use the word substitute. You can use the word sacrifice. You can use what's being known today with some theologians called just represent a representative. Jesus becomes our representative. 
And this is huge. That's what we talked about last week. The main picture of understanding the cross. But as important and as valid as this metaphor is, I want to caution us about only using one metaphor, one picture to understand and even to explain and live out what the atonement means. Because if we're honest, if we're honest, if you're honest, and I'm, we would say that we do this with other things, we lean into something that we gravitate to. Maybe it's because of our experience. Maybe it's because of uh, our education. I don't mean like higher education, just what we've learned. And sometimes we ignore the rest, right? Someone comes to Christ, they share their story. They're like, this is how you have to come to Christ. This is what happened to me. This is what should happen to you. I prayed, God delivered me. The next day I stopped X, Y, Z. I'm sure that's exactly how God's going to work with you. And so they lean on that experience. They lean on that, what they've learned. And then they just pass that on to people and ignore the rest. That's like a one club person, a one club person. So this illustration of, or this idea of substitution, it became so popular in, in the 15th century, 16th century, with someone named Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, all right, 16th century, and his, his pictures will be on the screen. Martin Luther jumped onto this theme with great passion. He was, he was ministering, he was a priest within the Catholic Church, uh, he, was, he was serving and pastoring and teaching and preaching and, and discipling. And what had happened during the time period before kind of this big idea of the Reformation took place, probably two decades like leading up to this, is that the Catholic Church was, was you know, teaching uh, certain things that Martin Luther felt like, oh, this doesn't give us the fullness of the cross. This doesn't give us the fullness of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Now, I want to just help you understand. I love the Reformation. I love what happened there. I appreciate it. We're grateful for it. Uh, in our walk with Christ, God used the Reformation and Martin Luther to bring needed correction for the church in history. But I want you to understand something. The Reformation, as a process, was a reaction, right? It was a reaction to something that was taking place. And reactions are never the same as actions. Isn't that true? Reactions are never the same as actions. If you have a, a child and, and you want to help your child grow in a certain way, it's one thing. You might approach them in a certain way. But when something happens that makes you fearful, that freaks you out, that your child's going to do something or whatever, are your actions the same way? No, you react. And often when you react, you go further than the action required. Isn't that true? You're often like, oh my gosh, I got to fix this. And then it becomes like, you know, kind of like a World War III response. And you're like, wait a second. Okay, let's just step back here. Let's just look at the situation. Because a reaction is not the same as an action. And when we react, we usually go further than the action needed. What was Martin Luther reacting to? He was reacting to this doctrine that, that built up in the Catholic Church called purgatory, the doctrine of purgatory, which led to the practice of indulgences inside the Mass and the services of the Catholic Church. Here's how N.T. Wright describes purgatory. It's on the screen. After death faithful Christians could expect to spend time in a place of punishment and purgation where sins were finally dealt with before they might finally enter, enter heaven. So there's this idea that, yeah, you're following Jesus, you've embraced Christ, you're, 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 you're in Christ's body, but, but when you die, there's a time, there's a period where you still need to work off the punishment of your sin. It's kind of not dealt with yet. 
And that led to the indulgences, where the church invited people to pay and pray and work, not to grow closer to God, but to work off purgatory, to work off, oh my gosh, when I die, how long am I going to be stuck in purgatory? I'm making it very simple, but that's kind of what the feeling was. And so Martin Luther reacted to that. And so when he, when he jumped onto Romans 3, it was like Nutella on white bread for, for Martin Luther. He was like, oh, this is amazing. Why have we missed? Where have we? We have missed this. We've met, I know you love Nutella, you got the picture. But here, so, so when he sees this and he reads through Romans 3 and then 4 and 5 and all the way to 8 and he's picking out these things, I mean, his message to the church and to the people around him now is like, we are not justified by anything that we do or anything that we pay or anything that we give. We're, give. We're justified by faith alone. Through this, as we read about faith in the scriptures, in Christ alone, and so and that, was a good, that wasn't a bad thing. That was good to bring this correction. But over time, the atonement was mainly seen as that metaphor of substitution. But of course, in that time frame, substitution was the best metaphor because I don't, I, God doesn't ask me to pay or give or do to be saved. I'm already justified in Christ. Christ is my substitute, my sacrifice. That's good. Um, and so, but that metaphor became the metaphor, and often others got pushed aside. And in the, in the middle of all that, this other part of substitution, which is called penal substitution, which was something from the patristic period, like this, the fourth and fifth century of the church, they understood this idea of, uh, of God's wrath being taken care of. Penal, that idea of penal substitution or the punishment being taken away, took on this new force with Martin Luther. And here's the reason why. Because the medieval world of the 14th and 15th century, the pagan world outside the church specifically, had this wrathful, this medieval wrathful view of God, this God who comes down and, and, and punishes and hurts and destroys when he doesn't have his way. And so this medieval view of God's wrath, this constant punishment got tied into this false doctrine of purgatory. And obviously they're looking back and saying, no, 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 wait a second. God's wrath is not against us when we come to Christ. But what they, they didn't fully separate is this medieval uh, extreme of God's wrath and the idea of God's wrath we see in the scripture, this jealous, this jealous anger towards sin that destroys us. And so they had to figure out a way, how do we help people understand that God's wrath doesn't come to them in Christ? Oh, okay, we know it's taken care of. And their emphasis became that it gets thrown on Jesus, that he gets all of God's wrath. And some took that metaphor too far, and they put God and Jesus against each other. That, that God looked at Jesus and said, I'm going to punish you on the cross. I'm going to beat you up on the cross. Where, where Paul, even in, in, in the scripture, when he writes, he helps us understand that, that sin, that, that death is the punishment for sin. That death is the punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death. And death is the actual punishment. Not that God throws his wrath into Jesus, but that Jesus jumps into death for us. He jumps into our punishment. And this is beautifully noticed, I think, in Romans 5, uh, 17. L -l Let's read this one together. For by the trespass of one man, Paul's referring to Adam, kind of, you know, for the, by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
So you have this, this, this exchange going on, but listen to how it looks like. Adam's sin brought death. Jesus' death brought life. Adam's sin brought death. Jesus jumps into death on the cross. His death gives us life. So vital to kind of just read this through the scriptures this way. And why am I bringing this up? Because sometimes we jump onto one picture and the, the cultural forces around us um, force us or make us maybe lean one way or another. N.T. Wright says that if the reformers had focused on Ephesians instead of Romans or Galatians, the Western world would have been different. Because Romans is such a thick theological book addressing an issue. And of course, it's not bad that they reflected on Romans. But you can see that all of Scripture together helps us paint a better picture. So, substitution, foundational. Sacrifice, foundational. But sometimes our experience and what we learn forces us or pushes us to lean on one metaphor and disregard the other. So I want to explore some other metaphors. Today's a little bit more kind of teaching in this way to give us some foundation. And next week, we're going to jump into practical stuff, practical application. Today's practical too, but here's this one more for We're going to start with Jesus because, because we often read a book or even read, read the Apostle Paul, which, which developed things out of what he understood from Jesus or read the first and second century teachers. But I want to read Jesus first. And there's three metaphors Jesus gives us. The first one is in Mark 10, chapter 45. And I don't want to read it as a theory. I want to just read it. This is what he said. This is Jesus's language. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And here's the image Jesus gives us. This is Jesus's words. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So here is another club that we might say, another image of the atonement is this ransom image. It's not the same club as substitution. It's a different club. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. The idea of ransom is this payment to release someone from bondage, to release someone maybe who's been kidnapped or who's been in slavery. And it's a price paid for another person's freedom. So ransom is like someone's been redeemed. And Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. He says, you were redeemed. You can even put the word ransomed in there. You were redeemed with the blood of Christ. Here's this picture. Jesus gives us this picture. Now, people turned this word ransom into a theory and this is how they developed the theory that jesus tricked the devil by offering his life so the devil's like ah, i got you jesus and jesus gives his life and so he tricks the, but he tricks the devil jesus tricks the devil because then jesus rises from the dead and defeats the devil and jesus is like no i win now that sounds overly simplistic and i wouldn't actually want to take much time in developing that theory because it almost seems too overly simplistic but the, the important point, I'm going to get to the heart of ransom in a second. Even though maybe it's not the, the most thought-out theory, it aims at telling us this. The devil is not all-knowledgeable. God is. The devil doesn't know the whole story. God does. We get this idea. That's not the heart of ransom, but this is where the theory played out. C.S. Lewis, in his book, and you've watched the movie or read the book, The Chronicles of Narnia, and uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when one of the, the two brothers, Edward, He's caught up in rebellion with the, with the wicked queen. And so he, 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 fall, he detours from the rest. And from Aslan, the king, who's kind of the Jesus figure in this movie, and his brothers and sisters and the rest, and he follows the queen, the wicked queen. He follows the queen. He basically sins. He basically trespasses against Narnia, the kingdom, and Aslan, the ruler, the king. And 
he feels so bad and he wants to, he, he escapes from the queen. He goes back, but he has done something against the kingdom. And the queen says, in our magic in this world, in our rules, C.S. Lewis, Lewis uses the word magic, he must pay for what he did. So Aslan and the queen go into this tent and they have this discussion and everybody's waiting outside. And then they come out and the queen absolves Edward of, of his wrongdoing and everybody's cheering. But what they don't know is that the reason that he's absolved from his wrongdoing is because Aslan stood in his place and said, I'm going to pay that price. I'm going to be the ransom. But when Aslan is crucified on the altar and the queen is rejoicing, the next day, if you go to the next slide, the next day, Aslan rises. So it's almost like, I got you moment. Ah, you thought, but this is the thing. Because the two little girls say, Aslan, how did this happen? This was the rules of the kingdom. And this was Aslan's word to them. He said, the queen does not know of the greater magic of this kingdom, the greater rules of this kingdom. She only knew what she understood, but there's a greater story that says, and then he goes on to say this story. And it's, it's beautiful how C.S. Lewis puts it into this image, but that's kind of what we get. Now, I wouldn't want to say this is a theory, you know, fully, but it's a beautiful image. But here's the heart of ransom. Here's the heart. It's not trick trickery. It's the value of Jesus' gift. The value of Jesus' life. Christ is the price of our redemption. He's the incomparable value. Jesus is pointing when he says this to the cost of redemption, to the cost of our salvation. The same word, kippur, in Hebrew means to cover, but as a noun, it means ransom price a ransom price to buy back a life. And Mark uses, Mark you know, helps us as he tells us the words of Jesus here. To Mark's hearers, as they're listening to this, listening to Mark tell the, to what, what Jesus' words were, they probably sit back and say, they probably, you know, ransom was one thing, but they probably saw that part for the many, that Jesus was a ransom for the many. And his hearers are like, that's us. We're part of the many. Jesus did that for us. He served us, right? He didn't come as a, to be served, but to serve and to be a ransom for the many. Here's the key to this, this idea that Jesus brings about. You and I are part of the many. In po the post-Easter stories and, and even writings like, like the Apostle Paul in Galatians, where Paul says there's neither Jew or, or Greek, nor um, there's neither male nor female, there's neither slave or free, all are one in Christ Jesus. That comes out of this. Jesus' incomparable price for the many, for all of us. That's, that's a beautiful image. That's a beautiful club used in the golf bag of the atonement. This beautiful image. Now, we don't have to turn this word into a theory to see that it's beautiful, to see that it's biblical, to see that it's a way that, that Jesus describes to us what will happen in atonement. And there's another image Jesus uses that's really, really cool. And it's John 3, 14 to 15. And, and it says this, just as Moses, this is Jesus speaking, and this is, leads up to John 3.16, the famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, 
that everyone who believes may have eternal life. So here's this other image, that when Jesus is lifted up onto the cross, something significant happens. Now, if you go back to this story, Moses, Numbers chapter 21, there's a moment where, where in discipline and response, God you know, allows these, these snakes to come into to Israel as they're wandering, and they're getting bit. And when an Israelite gets bit, they die, and everybody's freaking out. And they're like, Lord, please save us. So God tells Moses, this is what you do. Take the snake, put the snake up, and when the people look at the snake they'll be healed. They won't die. They won't die. I have Zachary here who's starting to work at a hospital, and you'll, he'll see that symbol, the snake symbol in the medical institutes, this idea of healing, this idea that healing comes or healing is possible. And here's Jesus who quotes this idea, quotes Moses, when you lift up the snake, you will be spared, you will be free, you will be healed, you will be made whole. Jesus uses this image that saving and healing, which can often be the same word in the Greek, that in Christ we're transformed and we're made whole. And we're given life. Eternal life is not just a pointing to heaven or the afterlife. The scripture says that whoever has the Son has life, starting now. This is an image that Jesus gives us of what the cross accomplishes. Here's another image from Jesus. I guess I should take another club. Otherwise, I'd be a one club person. Um, so Jesus takes another, this other one. Here's Luke, 20, Luke 22, verse 20. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You know where that's from, right? The Last Supper. Jesus sits with his disciples. They break bread. We're going to do that later today. They break bread, Jesus pours wine, and this is what he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Here's this image of what happens, what's an, an, an impact, an effect of the cross when Jesus dies. Jesus is referring to his blood that was shed on the cross, that his blood, that his blood, this image that his blood is like a signature for the new covenant. Now, the covenants in the Old Testament was this idea where the two parties, you know, was a significant ordeal and process and, and ritual. This, as, as Jesus dies, it's, it's symbolically saying his blood is signing a new covenant. And the new covenant opens up the door for all humanity to, to receive Jesus, for all humanity to be part of God's restoration project. Open relationship for everyone, not based on their ethnicity, on being Jewish or not, not based on the law and how they followed it or not. That the cross isn't merely just a path to forgiveness. The cross is a path to new relationship, a new way to get to know God. And Jesus gives us this image, this beautiful image, this other club good this other club in in the in his in his bag right that was my daughter laughing at me i think um so are are we seeing like are we seeing the bigger picture what club should i take any favorites out here putter putter okay we'll go for the putter so so here's this and it's funny this is so ironic because this is the kind of the smallest most intricate club and i'm going to go for the biggest metaphor here but Jesus is subversive, right? Weakness is strength at times. Paradox. Here's 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 25. I want to just walk through this next image. Then the end will come. This is Paul writing to an early church. When he hands over the kingdom 
to God. Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed, did you hear that? After he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be, de- to be destroyed is what? Death. Death is power. Sin is power. Here's this image we get. This image of the cross and the death of Jesus as victory. That's the paradox here. How would a death be a victory? And yet when Jesus dies, something is happening in the, in the spirit realm. That sin, the power, not just the action, is defeated by Jesus on the cross. There's a 10th, 11th century monk named Anselm, very influential understanding atonement. Some people misread him. Some people took his ideas far extreme. But here, here's, a, here's a, a quote from him in this narrative he writes. And listen to how he describes Jesus. He, Jesus, freed us from our sins and from his own wrath, from hell, and from the power of the devil, whom he came to vanquish for us. And by doing all these things, he manifested the greatness of love towards us. Fleming Rutledge says this, a drama. She talks about the drama of God's project and God's story. A drama where the love of God in Christ fights and conquers hostile powers. This image that in the cross, Jesus has victory. He brings conclusion. And here's this, this quotes what, what Jonathan read earlier in worship. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 57. And I didn't plan that. He just read Isaiah there. But listen to what it says. Death has been swallowed up. In victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But get this, but thanks be to God, he gives us the what? Victory. That was really weak. He gives us the? Awesome. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Later, the writer of the Hebrews says this. He too, talking about Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That he would break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. So this image, this little putter image to this big victory, this image is Jesus defeating sin and death and the powers. Theologians call this theory Christus Victor. But we see the images in the Bible. But it's not just victory over the powers in the way we think, like this cosmic battle. It's part of that. But it's also this. This is so important for our world. This is so important for people who suffer. This is so important for people who have been dealt with unjustly. So important for people who've been oppressed. That when Jesus dies on the cross, that victory, that defeat of power, is a direct judgment against injustice against oppression, against systemic evil. And anything rooted in sin and the powers of evil that leads to this, the cross says, I am against this. This is is not from me. I'm breaking this. So the cross doesn't just forgive us. The cross actually gives a sentence to sin. The cross actually sentences sin, not just our actions, the power to judgment. And here, this is actually... Some people should step back for this because those who cause injustice and those who cause oppression and those who nurture systemic evil in our society should say, oh man, God is against me. Because God is against those who do injustice. 
God is against the human trafficker. God is against the oppressor. God is against the slave trader. God is against the person who, who dangles systemic evil and controls it within our culture. God is against it, and the cross shows it. So many people uh, will look back to this era in South Africa where Nelson Mandela led South Africa out of um, horrible years of apartheid, and they grappled with, how, how, do we, how do we become a nation after all this? How do we become a, a nation after all this injustice? He spent years in prison. How do, we, how do we do that? And they came up with something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And Desmond Tutu, who was a, an Anglican uh, uh, bishop at the, in, the, in South Africa, was part of that. And what they, what they realized is they can't just say, as a human, or they can't just say, this never happened. They had to figure out, how do we name this? So the, so the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, they named the wrongs. They named the injustice. They heard from the oppressed. They heard from the oppressors. And they pursued restorative justice. They said, evil must be acknowledged and dealt with. And they got that out of this understanding that God is against this. And it must come out in the open. And here's what Desmond Tutu said, he's he's such a joyful individual. I love his smile. He says, there's nothing more radical, nothing more revolutionary, nothing more subversive against injustice and oppression than the Bible. What he's trying to say is that the teachings of the scriptures, the heart of God, is radically against injustice. And when Jesus opened up the scroll to Isaiah in a synagogue, he reads Isaiah, we find it in Luke chapter 4, and he, he, he says that he's come to fulfill this, to free, to free the prisoners, to release the oppressed, to feed the hungry, to give sight to the blind. That's God's heart, and we see it in the cross. Now, here's the thing. We long for justice, for evil to be dealt with, but we know that the fullness of it won't happen until new creation. Paul even tells us that creation itself longs for restoration, that it's under sin's power, and yet, something happened at the cross that started to shake that up. Here's, here's what um, Fleming Rutledge says. She says, The powers and principalities may not know it yet, but their foundations have been undermined and cannot last. The creation has been and is being invaded by the new world and the age to come. See, Jesus said, that when he came, he says, he announced the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. When he died on the cross, he, started, he shook the foundation of the injustice and evil in our world the, against the powers and principalities that one day, the cross stamped it into being, one day it will be fully, fully taken care of. And Jesus' rule will rule fully. And all that will be wiped away. And the longing for justice will come. Here's, here's the promise we see. Paul tells us this in Romans 8. And then I'm going to wrap up. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's the promise. Jesus says the kingdom was coming and coming near. The cross put a stamp of victory against sin and its powers. And the promise is one day we will see the fullness of it. That's a promise we have. And that's a message to injustice in our world. So I'm going to wrap up because... I want to bring this to a conclusion. I want to take some time with communion today. And our worship team can slowly make their way up in the next minute or so. But here's here's partly why I wanted to share this. One, I wanted us to see there's something bigger 
in what happened at the cross than just one club images. There's something bigger happened at the cross than just one theory or one image of atonement. Yes, there's some foundational ones, but we see this bigger picture. And I only shared five, four or five of them today. We can grow into this and understand there's something beautiful that takes place here. And here's what I want us to do. And here's kind of my way to help teach us and disciple us as a church. A few things I want us to get from this. One is, do not get stuck on one metaphor when the scriptures give you more. That's important for all things when we read the scriptures. Do not get stuck on one metaphor when the scriptures give us more. When Jesus gives us more, don't get stuck on one. You know, there was wisdom, and I think the Holy Spirit was involved when the the church councils in the first several centuries and the creeds came together. Do you know that there was no articulated theory of atonement in the creeds? or in the councils, they just left it open because it was so beautiful and so big, they, they didn't give it to us. I thought there was some wisdom in that. Don't get stuck on one metaphor when the scripture, Jesus gives us more. Secondly, don't only use the metaphor that fits your experience. Don't. I'm a, I have a Italian background. My grandmother became a Christian out of a Roman Catholic background in southern Italy where the nuns and the priests often um, were very derogatory to them. My dad, as a six-year-old kid, was abused by a nun in his Catholic, in his Catholic school that he went to. And, and here's, here's the reactionary piece. What do we do? Sometimes as Italians who become Christians, we're like, all of that is like, we just, it all sucks. It's all bad. And so we, our view of salvation, our view of leading people to Christ, is all out of that experience. And it's like, okay, it's for sure, God let us out of that. But there's, there's more to it. We can't just use one metaphor that fits our experience. And I grew up in, in an Italian um, church where many obviously came to faith out of Catholicism. So often their knee-jerk reaction was everything in Catholicism was bad because that's where they came out of. But we would read things and say, oh, I think this, this kind of aligns with what Jesus said, and this does. I know that there were some issues here. And so our experience, we throw everything out because of our experience. So don't only use the metaphor that fits your experience. I was just sharing mine. And lastly, don't restrict the gospel to your metaphor box, to your metaphor, to your box. Let the gospel be the gospel. Let the the images we get in Scripture be the images we get in Scripture. Each metaphor isn't the full picture, but all of them together give us a wonderful full picture. Amen? So important how how we grow in a solid orthodoxy at our church, but also a generous orthodoxy in our church, a generous belief. Now, Here's why I'm saying this. This is my pastoral kind of guidance to us. I don't want us to become a church that is so limited in our view of atonement that we miss the full picture of Jesus, that Jesus gives us, the full picture that the New Testament gives us. I don't want us to be so stuck in any of our beliefs on one finite definition that we feel so proud about, and then we miss the beautiful deliverance, big picture deliverance that God wants to bring us through. I don't want us to make the cross or any doctrine so small and controllable that we miss out on what God wants to do in us. Because it's bigger. It's bigger, right? If, if, I, if, if, if someone was to ask you how to describe your faith in Jesus, would you say, I believe in a system? Would you say that? Does it make sense? I believe in a system? No, we believe in a savior, right? We don't believe in a system. We don't believe in a a theological system. We don't believe in that. We believe in a savior. 
Of course, we learn theology and discuss theology and grow to that. We don't believe in a system. We believe in a savior. And that savior brought about substitution, sacrifice, ransom, redemption, representation, victory. He was a just judge. He's a healer. He's a model. Isn't that much? Isn't that better? Isn't that bigger? Bigger is better in this sense. It's bigger than we think it is. When C.S. Lewis was pushed to, to give a response for what he thought was happening at the cross, he, he, he articulates in one of his books that he went through seasons of being stuck to one idea or another idea. And then he says, I've come to realize, and he, he just short, shortened it this way. He said, Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and gives us new life. And he's like, I'm with that. That's what Jesus did for me. And we read Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.19. We read it last week. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against him. That's the heart. There's so much in there. There's so much beauty and different images in there, but that's the heart of it. So we step back like Paul does in Romans 11 after he writes and writes and goes deep and he just says, all the depths of your wisdom, God, all the depths of your wisdom. I can't fathom it. Who can fathom it? The depths of your wisdom. Let's pray before we move into a time of communion. Father, God, we thank you for, obviously, for the reconciling work of the cross. We would not be here or in relationship with you. We would not be so passionate to share a message to the world if this was not the case. But God, as we step back, help us to see the beautiful big picture of the cross. Yes, the substitution and sacrifice. Yes, how Jesus represents us. But also, God, the ransom, the value. Also, God, the healing and wholeness. Also, God, the, the new covenant, the new relationship. And also, God, the victory. God, that tells us, as obviously, but the whole world that you stand against injustice and oppression and evil. God, we're so grateful that the cross is bigger than we think it is. It's bigger than our experience. It's bigger than how we articulate it. It's bigger than the theory we lean, lean onto or latch onto, God. And it's brought us salvation and wholeness. It invites the world. God, we're so grateful for that. And may today, even as we come to the table and take these elements. May we see the beauty and expansive greatness of this. Draw us closer to you, God. We want to let your gospel run free in our hearts to change us and stir us up and convict us and transform us wherever you see fit, God. In Jesus' name, amen.